Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 244. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have another guest, Valley D. Hello. And Valley, I wanted to speak to you today specifically about improv versus stand-up as two approaches to comedy. You have experience in both, and as the audience, I'm sure, painfully recalls from my various references, I've only ever done improv, and I've certainly seen stand-up. I've also watched improv shows. But my particular curiosity in discussing it with you or with anyone is that I think there are philosophies to both, approaches to both, in their pursuit of comedy, in their means of engaging an audience, that are distinct. And I do think there's overlap there, but I'm excited to discuss the areas where there may not be, at least in my perception. And of course, wherever you disagree or agree, I'm excited to follow. One of the earliest bullet points I had written down in reflecting and preparing for this episode is that to me, improv is more about discovery of an idea of something that's funny or weird, whereas stand-up, often in my knowledge, prepared, is more about revelation or observation. To elaborate a little bit, and then of course I would love your thoughts, in improv, as I've often been told by instructors, the character that you are playing has lived in this world. So anything they are experiencing should not necessarily be all that new. They're not picking up something out of nowhere. They're picking up a book off of a shelf that has been there since the scene began. You're exploring that world, and you might happen upon something that's funny, but conversely, stand-up being set in the real world, or often referring to reality that is shared, in my perception, definitely influenced by stand-up that I've watched more often than not online, stand-ups have experienced life, written down their observations and opinions of their experiences or the experiences around them, and they've refined that language to find not only what is true, but what is funny about it. And I think stand-up could well be described in many cases as comedic philosophy, people's existential routes through life. In my mind, there's somewhat more of a purpose to stand-up than to improv. I feel like a lot of what you said is true, but vaguely true. The beautiful thing about comedy is discovery, whatever form that comedy is in. And there is improv, I think, to stand-up. I don't think that people necessarily think of improv this way, but the same way that a stand-up comes on stage with some amount of material already prepared, improvisers also do that because someone off the street can't go on stage and do the same thing that an improviser with a lot of training can do because that improviser with a lot of training has characters in their mind that they've played before that they feel comfortable playing. They have settings that they like to play. They have relationship games they like to play, a toolkit if you will. And a stand-up comedian goes on stage with more of a toolkit that is made up of jokes, sure, or like different tricks and things. But the same way that improvisers set the stage with a scene or a setting or a relationship, and then they discover within what they've set up, they discover the comedy, they discover things that are interesting. A stand-up comedian goes on stage with their experiences, with whatever they plan to open with, whatever jokes they have or plans they have for that set. And whatever their audience is, 
that guides where they go. So a really present stand-up might take the mood of that evening or the size of the room or what the stage looks like or the stand-up comedians that went on before him or her and they might improvise something right then and there that the audience never expected to see. So I I do think that there's discovery to stand-up the same way that there is preparation to improv. I really appreciate that point and especially where it draws threads between the two and turns my understanding of improv on its head To me, ideal improv is so spur of the moment and on the spot, but that is idealizing it. And you make a great point. I love your phrasing here that there are characters that we feel comfortable playing, certain body postures, word choices or accents, anything really that can define a character that improvisers certainly slip into. A part of me does wonder if the best improvisers, though, do what they can to get outside of that. But at the same time, we are fallible. And I think at the end of the day, fall into certain tracts of where we are comfortable, what we know. And at the end of the day, all of this, or most of comedy, I think, is done to elicit laughter, to produce comfort and pleasure in the audience. And so even if the performer's not limited, there is a degree of limitation in the audience. You can't truly go anywhere because if your audience doesn't approve, they'll have all kinds of negative or apathetic reactions. And I'd love to dig a bit more into this idea of characters that improvisers feel comfortable playing. And as a starting point, I'd be especially curious to ask you, in your three-plus years of stand-up, you of course have a personality, you have individuality, you are a human being. But on stage, when you've performed stand-up comedy, do you ever feel like there is a character, a version, a persona of yourself that you are portraying? And if so aspects of her character that come to mind? That's an interesting question. I would go so far as to say that every comic is playing a character or perhaps many characters on stage, whether they're conscious of it or not. And my goal early on when I started, I was just trying to elicit laughter. I didn't know what would make that happen, but I tried in a bunch of different ways. Most of them were just jokes that helped me learn, but didn't stick with me in the long run. And there came a point probably a year in when I realized that my goal should not be to write jokes that are funny by itself. I just had this realization that the funniest I ever feel, the reason that I do stand up is that there are times when I'm super comfortable, when I'm feeling very giddy and happy and jokey and it's effortless and I'm just like the most charming version of myself. I keep coming back to this example still, but in my mind, I just recall times when like I'm with a really close friend of mine at a bar where I don't know anybody and there's strangers that I get into a conversation with. And because I'm with a good friend and I know that I'm going to have a fun night no matter what, all of a sudden there's like no pressure on me to be any kind of way. And I get to just have as much fun with these people as I want. And if they don't like me, so be it. That's so easy for me to just have fun with my friend. But if they do like me, then that is such a great opportunity for all of us to have such a magical social experience. And when I'm doing stand up, that is the version that I try to come back to. And it's not that I'm trying to play a character per se. It's that I'm trying to play myself in an intense way. There was something you said about the best improvisers and how you hope that they don't just use the same old toolkit and that they kind of push past that. I don't remember your phrasing, but I agree. I think the best improvisers, they have a very sophisticated toolkit that they use. And like a very experienced jazz pianist 
they have all of this music theory and then they can feel free to play. And they don't use the same old tools necessarily or they don't think of it that way like, oh, here I go, just another improv set. It's new and it's discovery every time and it's exciting because now they have all these tools and they can use them at will and they can gear whatever they choose to do towards the specific audience in front of them at any given moment or the players that they're playing with. So I think they still are prepared, though. My point is that, yes, great, push beyond your limitations and try new things. But the reason they're so great is because they're extremely prepared. I'm smiling because there's so much of what you said about comfort and freedom and the idea of feeling or being effortless that profoundly resonates with me. And I suspect will with any listener, regardless of their comedic experience, aspirations or connection, because at the end of the day, the way that you describe your character, I'm putting in air quotes, which is indeed not a character, is a version of yourself, in my words, at your most free, your happiest. And that connection to yourself in the bar setting where there's the freedom to explore, but also the freedom from some consequence and a sensation that I think all people deserve to feel. And I so worry about the way that people socialize from a place of fear where they have offended, and I'm not saying that anything goes in social settings, but what I so envy and admire in certain scenarios about stand-ups or others pursuing any kind of artistic freedom is that it's profoundly human. And I hope that something you said resonates with a listener in that regard, because I think I've felt what you're describing, and I often feel great joy and freedom in a good improv setting. And I really love this idea of feeling effortless because some of my least comfortable moments, often in improv class, have been with partners, as I'm sure they've experienced of me, that on stage feel like they're trying to shoehorn a joke in, or that the entire scene was a long setup for a joke. In a stand-up setting, I don't think this would be quite the same because the audience likely knows that you're trying to make them laugh. In a lot of ways, I don't envy that position because they're primed. They might even be resistant to you trying to make them laugh. But in an improv setting, at least as I've described that scenario, I've often felt like an accessory. And I really don't appreciate that experience because it's not cooperative. You feel like a pawn in someone else's three or four minute long joke that you weren't privy to. And I think there's a degree of honesty in comedy that's really profound and interesting. And with improv in my mind, it starts with other improvisers. Can I trust you to take this scene to a place we'll both be proud of? Or even if we go through murky or shadowy waters where the scene isn't quite clear, that I've got your back. A good friend and I recently had an improv scene that began with five seconds of silence. And after the show, she remarked that she felt completely comfortable in it. And that's maybe one of the best compliments I've ever received because of how anxiety-inducing it can be to fill a stage with just yourselves and no words, at least for a little bit. And so I think trust comes into this. And to me, great improv is about showing an audience that you trust one another as improvisers, and that in turn can help earn some of their trust. But it's my perspective, as I hope you will clarify, refine, or disagree with, that great stand-up or great comedians that are solo artists have to do that work of earning trust in other, more independent ways. I think performing is a privilege, and no matter what your art form, you need to gain an audience's trust, or it is wise <laughs> to try to do that. And if you do stand-up, you certainly have to do it alone, 
I think a lot of people believe improv and stand-up to be almost opposite of each other, but I have found them to be incredibly linked. Every time that I do one or the other, I find similarities, I feel like. And gaining the audience's trust is like a acknowledgement that it's a privilege to be performing in front of them. And whether you're doing improv or if you're doing stand-up, there are a lot of opportunities to make the audience feel invisible or taken advantage of, or vice versa, very happy. Would you speak at all on ways you've gone about trying to earn the trust of an audience? Are there things that you've done that show that respect? I want to be clear in saying that three years is not a long time to be doing stand-up. And though a lot of that time I've been very diligent and hardworking about it, that doesn't make my three years the lifetime that it takes to really master something like stand-up. However, I have gone about it the same way a lot of people have. I open with a strong joke, or I try to. If I can't open with a strong joke or I feel like there's something I would rather open with, then I try to make it relevant to what just happened and at least be honest to who I am. Because oftentimes the truest, most honest reaction is the funniest reaction. If I can be genuine, if I can go on stage and say the thing that some good percentage of the audience was feeling or thinking anyway, that is like telegraphing, hey, I'm present here with you. I acknowledge that you're here. I respect that your opinions matter. And the way that you see me now, I was just in your seat seeing what was happening before this. And then I'm going to disappear into being one of you again after this. So I think that is a tiny signal to the audience. Oftentimes making a comment that is relevant to the specific circumstances that you're in, that often elicits laughter. And if it doesn't, then I try to follow with a strong joke. And I think those two things combined let them know, hey, you're in strong hands. You are safe. You don't have to be worried about me as the performer. I am comfortable up here and you should be comfortable with me entertaining you. What I particularly appreciate about that phrasing is that so often if I tell a person I enjoy improv or God forbid that I perform with near universality, a comment that will come from other people is that's really great. I don't love watching it. It makes me very uncomfortable even being present with the uncertainty of improvisers figuring out what the scene is or what's funny about a scene. And so I love that you're pointing out the need to show a strong hand, to open with confidence to any audience that is there for whatever reason. I also appreciate your phrasing of respecting the audience, the privilege of being allowed to perform, which I think many people, I suspect many more in a modern setting where online you can have an audience almost instantaneously fail to appreciate how truly special it is to be able to perform. I think it's something a lot of us take for granted. But I love your phrasing on comfort because that's how you build any strong relationship is making other people feel like they've been seen. And I really commend you for putting that into words. I also want to touch on that idea of being seen. You remarked on audience invisibility because performers, quite obviously, are also visible to the audience. And in a conversation I've had recently with a therapist, I've remarked, on how little vulnerability I feel on stage. I don't feel invulnerable or completely powerful, but where other people might say, I find improv or any performance to be incredibly vulnerable, 
for me, improv, and in my mind does differ from stand-up, is not about me, Kip Clark. I'm playing a character. Sure, it's still my body, my voice, my words. But if the character's foolish or laughable or even villainous, it's a role that I'm playing. And so I don't feel attached to that individual's downfall or arrogance or other traits. And to an extent, I hope they are buffoonish, laughable, or absurd because that earns laughter. And it doesn't feel like the laughter is with me because I, Kip, am playing someone, but it is targeted at me or my character. And in a weird reversal, that feels more comfortable. I know I'm wearing a mask and I'm fine with it being laughed at because that's why I voluntarily walked on stage. And in my perception of a lot of stand-up at least, it can be very personal. And to me, therefore, a little bit more vulnerable. If the audience doesn't laugh at you, I could see that being a personal rejection in one's emotional lens of a circumstance. And at the same time, perhaps that validation of laughter might feel proportionately more encouraging because you thought those words, you took the time to observe them, maybe even write them down and workshop them. And I feel like a stand-up victory, to put a noun to it, might be a little bit different than an improv one, though I also want to come back to things you've said that they're not completely alien from one another as approaches, but I do see gradient and difference between the two. I think it comes down to personal ego. I think there are healthy and unhealthy ways to think about your own creativity and your own art. If you're the type of person that beats yourself up when you fail at something, stand-up is going to be really tough. I mean, you bomb. You have to bomb. Bombing is when people don't laugh at what you said. And in order for you to discover what is funny, you have to first kind of explore what is not funny. What does not make people laugh? What does not make people feel good? And what does not inspire them? And only by kind of eliminating a lot of things can you get to, you know, the raw, interesting things that you've experienced or that you think. A lot of people don't have the skin for it. I read once a book about a personality disorder, and it was characterized as people with this personality disorder don't have emotional skin, which I really liked that phrasing. I think if you don't have very thick emotional skin, then going on stage alone and not getting the reaction that you want from an audience is going to be tremendously difficult. The same way that I built up an emotional skin doing stand-up and bombing and not always getting the reaction I wanted, I kind of have had to build up that emotional skin with improv because I did improv. And even if things did go well, I would come off stage feeling like I didn't do my best or I could have done better or something. And I think it's important to be self-critical and self-aware and improve upon your own behavior and your own learning. But also it's important to forgive yourself and give yourself the benefit of the doubt and give yourself the space to be learning for a while and you don't get born an expert on anything. So what you said about stand-up I think is also true of improv, of not feeling accepted by an audience or by your peers maybe not feeling like what you've done has met the mark. In stand-up, sure, you maybe have no one to blame but yourself, but I think if you're doing improv like I have, it's very easy for me to come off stage and feel like a scene went poorly because of me. Not because of something my scene partner did, because the way I think of improv, if my scene partner is not good at improv, if I were better, maybe I could have compensated for the flaws that they were bringing to that scene. 
And I want to come back to something from before, which was making the audience feel comfortable. There's something about classical music that is very different from non-classical music or, or popular music. When you go to see an orchestra play and when you go to see someone like Beyonce, something that you might notice is the outfits and the difference between them. Beyonce comes on stage dressed for the coolest party that has ever existed. And a violinist goes on stage dressed for like a sad cruise or something, but like a very professional event. They're often dressed in suits. If they're not dressed in a suit, then they're in very nice like funeral clothes. <laughs> and maybe not, maybe I'm not bringing the best imagery to mind. They're not dressed in like a light and cheerful way. Typically, they're dressed in like dark colors because it's not about what they look like. It's about the art, the music that they're bringing to the table. But the reason that we pay to see them is because these are professionals. Only people with so many years of training can play a symphony or a concerto in like a really skilled way. And so we want to see them respect us. And the way that they do that is by looking in the mirror and dressing the part every time. And the same way Beyonce doesn't come on stage in just like sweatpants. Like she's gone through a ton of makeup and the performers are really thinking about what they look like also, not just what they're bringing to the table metaphysically, but also physically. And what you're describing there leads into another point I wanted to bring up with you that in my perception, improv, or at least the improv approach, though both are comedic, is more a space of wonder and low authority by which I mean, at least in improv I've observed, experienced, etc., that points aren't always trying to be made. Political or social commentary isn't always at the core, though there are exceptions to what I'm saying. And conversely, that stand-up, again, all of this is really my association or belief or perspective on stand-up, a thing that I have never done, is that it's from a place of knowledge and high authority. We see comedians like Wanda Sykes, John Mulaney, Joan Rivers, Michelle Wolf, Ali Wong, Sarah Silverman, Bo Burnham, Anthony Jeselnik. You could name a million different comedians. It seems like everyone at this point has a Netflix special or something out there. But I reference all of them because as individuals, I would imagine that listeners who have seen their material call to mind certain imagery. We see imagery of them walking out on stage framed by spotlights or curtains there is a distinct authority in the way that we see them, in the way that, as you had pointed out, not only how they are dressed, but in my mind, the physical embodiment that certain comedians have. I think to improv, what I love about it is often that you can explore physical space in wild ways and pantomime everything. And I wish I saw more of that in stand-up. And by more of that, I acknowledge that there are stand-up comedians who certainly embody different characters or physical space and I think physical comedy is essential. But I tie this back to authority because when we think of, at least presently in our society, people or opinions that we respect, there are podiums, there are sharp vertical lines, people are standing tall, not hunched over, not in prone or sitting positions. Often, when we see them in positions of authority and folks with microphones that are often making points, be they politicians or comedians, are often, at least in my mind, here's where it's very subjective, in that vertical pose, that pose or many poses of strength, postures that connote high authority. And I keep referencing myself, but at least that's how I see stand-up. I associate it with more point-making, with more authority, even if it's misplaced, than I do with improv. 
I think both stand-up and improv have the power to make a point. With stand-up, there are as many styles of doing stand-up as there are stand-up comedians. You'll find subgenres of stand-up comedy where it's very important to make political points. There are certain comedians that focus on topical humor. They're always talking about what's in the news, and they are making points constantly. Sometimes it's virtue signaling. Sometimes they truly believe what they're saying. I, I think that there's a lot to be said for both or said about both, I guess. And there are other comedians that never talk about what is right or wrong. They never talk about what is political or what's the flavor of politics that month. They talk only about their personal life. They talk only about their personal preferences when it comes to dating or romance or the way you treat your family. And I don't think that you must make a point to be funny doing stand-up. And conversely, in improv, there are plenty of opportunities to make a point, whether that's in the characters that you choose to embody or the dialogue that you want to move forward. There was a scene in an improv class I had where basically the topic of sexism came up. And I believe there was something about women's rights or maybe women's health. One person was in the focus of the scene and there was an ensemble of performers around them. And it just so happened that the person in the focus of the scene was put in the position of having to refute a bunch of sexist points. So each performer in the room was put in the position of having to go on stage and to play the game that that scene was playing, each person had to go on stage and say something sexist, only to be then refuted by the person in the focus of the scene. It's a very common group game where the entire ensemble is saying one thing and one person is saying the opposite. We watched this play out in a lot of different ways, but all of a sudden in our improv class, it was made political and we all had to play this very saucy game that was full of <laughs> opportunities to make the wrong point or make a point that was going to require a lengthy emotional conversation afterwards because our class was full of very socially active people, people who think a lot about social justice and people who are pretty I would argue everyone in that class was college educated and a liberal thinker. And it was sort of like, if you said the wrong thing, you might end up walking on eggshells for the rest of the class because it was sort of a moment to show yourself in whatever way you think. And that type of situation was accidental for us. But I would not be surprised in the least if an improv troupe decided that they wanted to create a show centered around games like that, conversations like that, themes like that. At the end of the day, the points that you make or don't make is dependent on the person that you are or are not. And if you happen to have stumbled upon improv instead of stand-up, you might be making points through improv. There was something that we talked about before we started recording, which was about, I think you said improv and maybe the beauty of it is that it can be best enjoyed live and it loses its luster if you watch a recording of it later. And you said that stand-up, in contrast to improv, remains as funny if you watch a video of it later or, or it holds up. And I just think that that's not true. <laughs> I think that improv live is magical the same way any live performance is magical. Watching video of your favorite band later when you were at the show 
it might bring you back to what it was like if you were at the show. But if you were never at the show, it's going to feel completely different because you're surrounded by the room that you're in in your house where you feel comfortable and it's not exciting at all. But you're watching a video of someone else having an exciting experience and you're so far removed. So watching stand up on video, you can do everything to try and make that experience special. You can turn the lights off in your house. You can blow it up on a big screen. You can pretend that you're not at your house and you can pretend that you're in the room with them. But there is something about watching stand up live where at any moment the comedian could look right at you and say something to you or ask you a question or hear the noise you made or hear the noise your partner made, or hear the noise that someone in your section of the room made, and change the course of what they're saying. And that is a special feeling that does not remain if you watch video of them later. Sure, you can experience the joke that they wrote, but I don't think that's the same. And watching improv later, if you try and put yourself in the room with those people, watching improv can also be quite compelling especially in the cases of your grandmother who couldn't travel to see you perform, for example, and really wants to experience the show that you are in and really wants to revel in the glory of you learning to be a performer, in my case. That's the best she can have is watching a recording of me perform. And so for her, that is a very special experience too, even though for me, it's awful to watch those tapes. I think you do a great job at capturing the value of actually being somewhere And indeed, more of us, I think, could stand to watch live performances of any kind. Because as a performer, it's incredibly gratifying to see actual people there. I do wonder as technology develops if there will be more digital tourism of some of these spaces and people watching or streaming in real time and them feeling like they are there. But I agree with you that there's a barrier of interactivity that simply doesn't exist, at least presently, unless you are there. In my mind, having made that point before recording, most of my experience of stand-up is primarily auditory. Maybe I'm not the viewer I wish I was or as shrewd or perceptive because there are plenty of stand-up specials or stand-up comedy whose audio is most important to me that I'll listen to while doing other tasks or chores. And I still capture the joke because the intonation, the volume, pitch, tempo, and other aspects of speech are really what captivate me. But I don't deny that that's unfair to people who, as we've earlier discussed, are probably aware of their appearance, not only in attire, but in the ways that their body language is communicating a joke or a feeling. And I appreciate you making that point as something I think we all should consider. And to that, as we close up this conversation, what would you like our audience to think about after listening to what we've discussed? I would encourage anyone listening to this to go see a live performance, whether that's stand-up, improv, or something else entirely. Being with other people, experiencing a performance is entirely unlike watching a recording of it or listening to a recording of it alone. Even though both are beautiful and both can be life-changing, I would encourage people to go out there and feel the difference for themselves. I wholeheartedly agree, and I'd be really curious to hear from listeners where Valley and I have our own perspectives on stand-up comedy and improv and the relationship between them, what you think between the two or other forms of comedic expression. If you see similarities and differences, we'd love to hear from you. And Valley, of course, for your candor, I'd like to thank you, and by all means, 
please feel free to plug yourself. Thank you for having me. This has been really wonderful. If people are interested, they can find me online on my website. I'm valleyd.com. That's spelled V-A-L-L-Y-D.com. And on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, my handle is valleydthecomic. Excellent. And I, of course, encourage listeners to do so. But of course, as always, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. Ours are two voices, comedic or otherwise, and we genuinely love to hear from you. So if you have any opinions, thoughts, or comments of any kind, you can find us on Twitter or on Facebook. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider telling a friend and also subscribing to the show. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.